According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are uh, in verses 12 through 18. In the third and final of the three exhortations of this chapter, we are headed for verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I'm not ready to uh, to preach that yet. I'm highly hypocritical when I do teach it because I'm the biggest grumbler in this church. Um, but this is uh, what we what we have to deal with. So uh, if I can delay for three or four more weeks, we'll see if we can stretch more information out of verses 12 and 13. And uh, maybe we can hear a trumpet and be raptured out of here before uh, we get to verse 14. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is where we are presently. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, to will and to work of his good pleasure. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Spirit, deal with any carnality issues, to humble ourselves under the hand of God, shall we pray. Good morning, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we were able to begin this morning with a prayer time, with a fervent, effectual prayer. Father, on behalf of a, uh, an unspoken request that was made, uh, Father, uh, we want to give that to you and call upon your faithfulness on this day. And I thank you that of all days, Father, today we commemorate the resurrection of our Savior, the blessings we have to walk in the newness of life. And so, Father, on this day, we call upon your faithfulness to, uh, to bless your children, Father. Uh, bless us in our study and, uh, and bless uh, the circumstance we're praying about. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 2, we're dealing with work out your salvation, the third and final uh, of the three exhortations that uh, comprise the first half of this chapter here. And uh, so we've already dealt with the uh, make my joy complete. We've dealt with the have this attitude in yourselves. Remember what attitude that is? Humility. That's the attitude of, of humbling himself, laying aside privileges. And, uh, and now we have the uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, our third uh, exhortation of this chapter. Uh, it begins with a so then that takes that whole doctrine of humility and it carries it across for our application, the humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ in the Kenosis hymn, and it directs the application to us, to the Philippian readers originally, but to us as it's inspired in Scripture and applicable for the church age. And so uh, we need to digest that entire doctrine and make our application. So uh, the work out your salvation with fear and trembling comes as a so then to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that we have that attitude on the basis of that attitude. Now we're working out our salvation. And that's what we see there. We spent uh, a little bit of time talking about the obedience without limit. Uh, that the obedience uh, came in stages and he continued to be obedient, that he became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that each step of the way was another opportunity to stop obeying, uh, an opportunity to draw a line in the sand and say, well, that's enough. Haven't I obeyed long enough? And uh, something similar happens here with the Philippians, that they were obedient always, uh, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So they had a progression as well. They were obedient while Paul was there. They stayed obedient after Paul had left. And he's urging them to remain even more obedient, uh, even uh, uh, in working out their salvation with fear and trembling. The things that they have to move up to or that they have looking forward to are going to be far worse than anything they've encountered up till now. And yet, he has every expectation that they're going to stay obedient. And uh, in staying obedient, they are working out their salvation. And we'll be defining those terms here shortly. All right. 
but with fear and trembling. We also discussed the aspect of uh, uh, presence and absence and why that's so descriptive of the church age. Really, the church age is a dispensation of the absence of our Lord, uh, and yet the imminent presence of our Lord because He can return at any time. That parousia can happen even now, and uh, we appreciate that. And then uh, Wednesday night and, and even a week ago Sunday, we, we were dealing with different agapetos applications, the uh, use of beloved for the beloved son. The father calls his son beloved uh, and how it's used throughout the New Testament for co-workers, for brothers and sisters that have gone through the struggles, that have been through uh, different things. Paul will talk about his beloved uh, kinsmen, his beloved fellow workers, different uh, applications there. We ought to be calling each other beloved in, uh, in different ways. Other than weddings and funerals, I think is what we're limited to on uh, dearly beloved we've gathered here today. And uh, we should maybe adopt that vocabulary for other settings beyond um, weddings and funerals. All right. Now, moving on then to the fear and the trembling. Moving on to the fear and the trembling, because I think We've covered everything there. We looked at the uses in First, Second Peter. We looked at the uses in First John and Third John. Uh, a tiny little book is Third John, right? Did you read it? Did you read all those verses? Because we got those four uses in verse one, two, five, and eleven, and uh, might as well read the whole book while you're at it. And uh, all those uses of beloved in that small book. All right. Which gets us this morning to the fear and trembling. And uh, our language becomes almost Yoda-like in uh, that it's out of order from standard English order. With fear and trembling, the salvation of yourselves keep working out. Okay, Yoda always liked to put the verb last. So you would have object, subject, verb. Um, anyway, but that's the order that we have it here in the Greek New Testament. With fear and trembling, with fear and trembling, the salvation of yourselves... Salvation is singular, but yourselves is plural. That it is of you, of all y'all. Okay, It is a genitive plural uh, of that you have there, possessive uh, uh, pronoun there, of you, of you all. But it's a single salvation. So it's not a plural salvations in the sense that I have a salvation, you have a salvation. We all have the same salvations. One salvation. And yet it's plural that all of us have. And this is what... We're commanded to keep on working out. And the verb, the imperative, is placed last in the verse. It's placed last for emphasis. It's placed last as a highlight. And so when we're looking here at verse 2, we start with a hosta, the so then. We end it with a work out imperative. Everything else is placed in between. And uh, we don't want to miss that and miss that point of emphasis. All right, with fear and trembling, the salvation of yourselves, keep on working out. Understand that fear and trembling, this is not only the manner in which they will work out their salvation. And that's what everybody jumps to. That's what we would be very quick to jump to. And you go, aha, this is the secret. This is the clue. You know, if I want to work out my, my salvation, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with fear and trembling. Simple, right? And so if I lose my fear of the Lord, then I'm not working out my salvation. And if I stop trembling, hmm, then if I, if I stop trembling, then somehow that also means I'm not going to be working out my salvation. So I've got to keep the fear going. I've got to keep the trembling going in order to work out my salvation. All that's true. All of that is true. And so we're going to study the, the concepts and we're going to learn. We've got to, we've got to keep fearing, never stop fearing, and never stop trembling. Well, I don't want to tremble. Well... <laughs> All right. So what is this idiom? What is this expression, fear and trembling? Because it's not limited to the, Old, the New Testament. It actually has its foundation in the Old Testament. It's a common expression. I think it's, it, it goes back even, I can't prove it, but I'm considering that it, the, the idea of the fear of the Lord was, was a function for the, for the uh, angelic stewardship as well, right? Mo, uh, Michael wouldn't rail against Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. I think that's a fear of the Lord application that the angels themselves had. So fear and trembling, uh, we, we want to know it for what it is. But before we talk about it pre- as a prescriptive uh, aspect, it is definitely prescriptive in this verse. It's prescribing this for us to apply. But it's also descriptive. It's descriptive because of the term just as. 
just as. And so we look at it again and we see, so then, my beloved, just as. <gasps> ah, okay. And here he goes again. This goofy pastor is going to spend time on a conjunction. All right, didn't we spend enough time on the so then that linked the paragraph before with the paragraph also? Yes, we did. We spent a lot of time because the so then is powerful the way that it takes the doctrine of the, of the kenosis hymn and it brings it forward to the application. Likewise, let's just not blow past the just as. The just as. Scripture uses it in powerful ways. And uh, for example, uh, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. Don't you think that's important? Because how did you receive Christ? By works, by your own human effort, or by grace through faith? Okay, well, that's how I received Christ. That's how you received, that's how we all received Christ. It's the only way to receive Christ. And so when it says just as you receive Christ, so walk in him, or to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, or all of these expressions, we understand that we have something that's already taken place. And we want to continue that, or we want to replicate that, or we want to, we want to do uh, something comparable. And so when it says, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, but the, the just as, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That with fear and trembling is connected to that just as, is what I'm trying to say. That with fear and trembling, it is a, it is a dative of means, it is a mechanism, it is an instrument. It is something that we're doing. We are fearing, we are trembling. And in our fearing and trembling, we are going to work out our salvation just as the Philippians have always obeyed. Okay, So the just as describes it. With fear and trembling is not only the manner in which they will work out their salvation, it is exactly the manner in which they have always obeyed. So when Paul was with them, they obeyed the Lord with fear and trembling. And when Paul left them, they continued to obey the Lord with fear and trembling. And so now they have this exhortation, the so then exhortation, to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And hey, guess what? They're going to keep, keep doing what they've been doing, only more of it. <laughs> All right. So fear and trembling, we never lose it. We never lose it. And if we do lose it, we're in trouble. If we lose our fear of the Lord, we're in, we're in a lot of trouble. See, All right. So this is exactly the manner in which they have always obeyed. And, and I want to encourage you, uh, us to consider this, that this is the normal. And, I, and I've, I've stressed this in, in prayer applications before many times. I've never stressed it in the fear and trembling attitudinal aspect that I think goes right with the prayer, the prayer principle. See, what am I talking about? I'm talking about brothers and sisters that have a crummy prayer life on a normal basis, but then on a crisis weekend, they get serious about prayer all of a sudden. Okay? And so something's going on, and now all of a sudden, we better start praying about this. Well, what have you been doing? Okay? Clearly, you've not been praying. And so if, if you have a normal prayer regimen, that is consistent, that is fervent, that is effectual, that is daily, that is normal. Well then, a crisis moment can come, and what happens? You just take it in stride. You just keep on going with it, right? And you have, okay, there's a specific element that you add to your previous prayers, but how hard is it to just go ahead and mix an extra ingredient in there if you've already been cooking in the kitchen anyway? right? You're already been, you've already had this thing simmering on the stove. You've already been doing this and doing that. And so sure, a crisis comes up. And so you, you might grab a little extra spice off the shelf and throw a dash of that in there. But it's not like um, you haven't seen the kitchen for weeks. Okay. It's not like you're going back in there and, you know, trying to light the pilot light to get that stove going that hasn't gone in months and trying to, you know, get the pots and pans out and you know, uh, some folks try to ramp up a prayer life on a basis that it's been rusty like, like you wouldn't believe, okay? So now that's an illustration I've used many, many times over the years. But now to add to that, this fear and trembling application, I would say it's the same concept. 
It's the same concept because just as communicates that that with fear and trembling has already been their circumstance. It's already been their attitude why and when they were obedient in Paul's presence, why and when they were obedient in Paul's absence, and why and when they will continue being obedient as they work out their salvation. That it's always been with fear and trembling on the uh, the Philippians' part. And so I think likewise that will do us uh, the same application. We want to adopt this in our mindset as well. All right, metafabu kai tramu. Fabu kai tramu. And uh, it just sounds like trauma, doesn't it? <laughs> tramu. Fabu, like phobia, fabos for fear. Fabu kai tramu. And so there's one meta, there's one with, and there's two, these two nouns. So one meta, fabu kai tramu, with fear and trembling. Now Paul is fond of this expression. Uh, we have it in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. First Corinthians 2, 1 says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so uh, here we have fear and trembling. Uh, it actually starts with an asthenia, with a weakness. And then uh, fear, and then the the traumas actually is is magnified with much trembling. Okay, and uh, we've discussed this in the past. It's been a while, but if you read through Acts chapter seventeen, you'll see the circumstances of Paul's second missionary journey. And really, what had such great promise ended up uh, going in an unexpected direction. And uh, and we have it here. All right, fear and trembling. Fear and much trembling. Okay, and so Paul is fond of this expression, fear and trembling. It, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? X7. I'll take one side trip this morning. I'm going to try to minimize these, but the um, I think it's useful. I'm not going to read 34 verses to you, but I am going to show you the paragraph headings, and then uh, we'll take it from there. It's really, it's a part of a, of, a, of a whole sequence. The second missionary journey, they had closed door after closed door after closed door. They'd assembled a marvelous team. You had Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, even Luke joined them. Luke joined them at Troas. And, uh, and so if you think about it, I think they had assembled a dream team. You know, an all-star cast for a missionary journey. You have an apostle. You, you, know, that, you know what I'm talking about with Ephesians 4, 11 and 12? He gave first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastor teachers. Well, that's the, that's the quadrifecta right there. I mean, that's it. That's, that's, their, that's their dream team. They had Paul. They had uh, Sylvanus. They had Luke. And they had Timothy. They had, a, they had all four right there. And then Paul gets a dream that says, come across to Macedonia. Wow, what a marvelous way to start a ministry. And so they took the gospel to Europe the first time the gospel hits Europe. And they've got this powerful dream team of, of, of traveling companions. And immediately it starts getting unraveled. They get beaten, they get thrown in jail, they get jailed in Philippi. When they leave Philippi, they leave Luke behind. That's where the wee portion disappears. So Luke, who joined them in Troas, departs from them at Philippi. And then they get to Thessalonica, they get run out of Thessalonica. Um, and, and you have this in the early part of chapter 17. They get to Berea. But they get run out of Berea from those same troublemakers that chased them from Thessalonica. Okay, Then they send Timothy back into Thessalonica. They send the 10-year-old in there, right? 10 or 12 years old. They send him in there to to teach doctrine, to to remind them of, of all Paul's ways, to encourage them as to their faith. And then evidently, um, Paul was left alone at Athens, so uh, Silas... Maybe they sneak him back into Berea. We don't know why Silas disappeared. Uh, but he's not with Paul at Athens. He's alone. So it may be that he went back to Berea while Timothy went back to uh, uh, Thessalonica. And so Paul's all alone in Athens. He gives, he gives the greatest sermon he's given and 
they're laughing at him. You know, they're, wow, this unknown God. And, and uh, so they begin to sneer. And you get to the end of chapter 17, and he preaches the resurrection. And so verse 31 says, uh, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. And so there is a day in which He will judge the world. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a coming judgment day. And Paul, uh, he's still thinking a single judgment day at this point. He didn't know anything about the the thousand years that separates those two judgments. (coughs) Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. He was going to get a a repeat booking. He was going to get a a callback. All right. But Paul went out of their midst. He wasn't sticking around for the callback. He was at a low point. And some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And uh, here he finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife named Priscilla. They were tent makers. He's able to stay with them. And this is what he. This is the circumstance now. And it's not until um, Timothy and and uh, Silas were able to rejoin him in verse five that things start to pick up again. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. And I expect that uh, maybe, rather than Berea, maybe uh, Silas went all the way back to Philippi. Because Philippi was the, the source of so much of these funds. In any event, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Okay, You might imagine. You know, what happens around here if... Uh, you know, we, we get thin and things drop off and, and i got to go back to jail again or take a part-time job or, or do some kind of a thing. Would, would, that be a, would that be a sad day? Would that impact ministry? Would that affect how things are done? Okay. And different things there. So when Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he was at a, at a low point. And uh, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is, a, this is just the reality of ministry. Not that Paul was a weak sister or some kind of a crybaby. It just, it is what it is. All right. Comes back again in 2 Corinthians 7.15. And so uh, this is a chapter where he talks about the turmoil that he had in uh, not uh, finding uh, Titus. And uh, the whole uh, reason why he left Asia, when he left Asia, the circumstances in which he did leave Asia, when he left Ephesus. And uh, even when he had an open door for ministry in Troas, he, he said, no thanks, and he left. And uh, verse 5 tells us, even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. You ever had such a spiritual turmoil that you couldn't sleep at night? It said his flesh had no rest. He was physically affected by his spiritual struggle. Conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. God who comforts the depressed. See, there it is. God deals with us where we are and the struggles we go through where we are. And uh, (laughs) then he finds out that, wow, Titus is still alive. The Corinthians didn't kill him. And not only that, but that they were repentant. they, They couldn't wait to see Paul again. So he had a lot to uh, rejoice over. And then uh, you get down to verse 13. So we've been comforted. For this reason, we've been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. 
His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him, and here's our phrase, with fear and trembling. So I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. And so this is the phrase as Paul used it. He used it in 1 Corinthians, used it in 2 Corinthians, used it in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 5. <clears throat> Got a lot of Ephesians 6 coming up. Wes uh, Beck has been working on his Armor of God message, and so that's two weeks from uh, tonight. But Ephesians 6, 5, uh, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Remember when you go to work, don't ever forget who you're working for. Don't ever forget who you're working for. And remember, fear and trembling uh, has an application in the workplace. And you see it there in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. You know, we all have those coworkers that that can butter up the the boss and act like they're the the best asset to the to the crew, and they're actually the worst. They're the laziest people around, uh, but they're men pleasers doing the eye service. All right. Anyway, this is a, an expression that Paul is very fond of, but the Septuagint foundation is well attested. The Old Testament foundation is well attested. And in Psalm 2.11, we see it here where it's going to be applied on a global basis. There's a warning that's given. <clears throat> There's a warning that's given in Psalm 2. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You see that tandem? There's a combination of worshiping and rejoicing. And the worshiping is with reverence. The rejoicing is with trembling. Obviously, we as poetry, so we can mix and match them and put them all together. You can worship with both fear and trembling, and you can rejoice with both fear and trembling, and we should. We should uh, in that concept and this is what we're doing to love jesus christ and this is what we're going to do for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth all right that's what psalm 2 is talking about psalm 2 why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing this is a prophecy of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom this is a prophecy when jesus christ is reigning in jerusalem and the uh, gentile nations are uh they're uh, not pleased with it. They're not happy with it. They're grumbling. They're devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against God the Father, Yahweh, and against His Mashiach, against His Messiah, His Christ. And so we have a global conspiracy of kings, of nations, Gentile nations that are hostile to the millennial rule of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. All right? Now, it doesn't start that way, of course. Uh, at the end of the millennium, every unbeliever gets executed. <laughs> okay? So we're going to start the millennium with 100% saved people on this planet. But how long does it take for those saved people to start having babies, to have generations uh, come up, to have new kings replace old kings, to, have, to start to have a growing resentment throughout those thousand years? We know at the end of the thousand years there's a Gog-Magog rebellion. Do you think that just happened overnight? Do you think that just happened out of the blue? 999 years of obedience and then one bad year at the end and Satan uh, <laughs> got released from the abyss and no, it was a growing, growing, festering resentment described in many places throughout the Psalms. I find that interesting. The feigned obedience of his adversaries. That's why he has to rule with a rod of iron. It is not an easy rule for a thousand years. And so uh, they take their stand. They take counsel. What does that mean? Conspiracy. They're, uh, they're plotting. They're devising a vain thing. So devising is a plot. Taking counsel is a conspiracy against Yahweh and against his Messiah saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. 
The number one goal of this global plot is to remove these Gentile nations from the sovereignty of Jerusalem. To remove these Gentile nations from the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The Ancient of Days has already ruled. He ruled against Antichrist. He ruled against Satan. He ruled on behalf of Messiah and upon his people. And so the Lord scoffs at them and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And so they better fear and tremble right there (laughs) because the Father's speaking. But as for me, this is his angry message, his fury sermon. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God the Father says, you had your, your king. That was Antichrist in the tribulation, and he's gone. He's thrown down. He's in, the, he's in the abyss. He's in the lake of fire. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Right? So Antichrist has been cast in. Even Satan has been cast in, abound for a thousand years. Not in the lake of fire, but in the, in the abyss. All right. Goes on to say, <clears throat> I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. This is Psalm 2.7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When God the Father begets the humanity of Jesus Christ, He uh, did so with a plan. He did so with a purpose. The overall plan is to magnify Jesus Christ for all eternity. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you see that in verse 8? Are you with me here? Are you looking at this? Because there's, this is bigger than the millennium. This is bigger than just the Abrahamic land grant. This is bigger than a, in a finite territory to one people group, the Jewish people. Jesus sits on the throne of David over the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom. And he has boundaries. Beyond those boundaries are Gentile kings plotting and planning and scheming and, and chafing at their fetters. And yet the Father has a plan to give the Son far more than just the Davidic kingdom, far more than the Davidic throne, far more than just the Jewish people in the land of Israel. He wants to give them everything. See that in verse 8? Ask of me. The Son has to request this. The Son has to ask. And I will surely give the nations, not just the Jews, all the Gentiles, as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. And so the millennium is just the warm-up. The millennium is just for starters, okay? Remember how David had just the tribe of Judah to start with, and then he got all the tribes? He got all the land of Israel for 40 years? But he started with just the tribe of Judah for seven years, and then he got all the of Israel. I think that's a pattern. Here we have Jesus, who has the Jewish people in the millennium, but then he gets the Gentiles and the ends of the earth in the new heavens and on the new earth in the fullness of time after the millennium. And so you shall, in the meantime, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. They're plotting, they're scheming, they're grumbling. And you're going to rule them with this rod of iron. It is a difficult reign. It is not an easy reign in the millennium. That's why he says, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. It is not a pleasant rule for those thousand years. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the final warning for the Gentile kings that when the millennium closes, when the millennium closes, this heaven and earth are going to pass away with a roar. They're going to be consumed. The elements themselves consumed with great heat. The world is passing away along with it its lusts. 
If they want to cross over to the new heavens and new earth, they're not going to do it the way they are. They're not going to do it now as unbelievers. They've got to get saved. They've got to get saved. Okay? Can you imagine? <laughs> it just boggles my mind how, uh, you know, when we give the gospel today, we're giving the gospel about a risen Savior who's seated at the Father's right hand. And so we're talking about a Jesus that these unbelievers can't physically see. But can you imagine what evangelism is going to be like when Jesus Christ is seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem? Believe in your king. Okay? And, you, and thou shalt be saved. Okay? You know? And, and if you think it's, there's derangement syndrome now with political leaders people don't like, there's fake news, there's resentments, there's all kinds of attitudes now with, because there's a, a president they don't like or a governor they don't like or whatever, a mayor they don't like. Imagine a king you don't like and oh yeah, by the way, you have to believe in him for, re- for eternal life. He died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And now he's seated on David's throne ruling Israel. Okay? It's going to be interesting. All right. So here we have this uh, fear and trembling. Then it says, the salvation of yourselves. The salvation of yourselves. Te heoton soterion. The of you guys' salvation. That's my rough Bob translation. Tain is the. Feminine singular because it goes with soterion, salvation. And then in between the salvation is the heotone, the of yourselves. Okay? So you have the salvation. What salvation? The of yourselves salvation. The of yourselves salvation. And it's of yourselves plural, heotone. It's not heo two, it's not singular, it's heo tone plural of all y'all. They have this common salvation. We all do. You and I, we have this. But now which salvation are we talking about? Because soteria can be used in, in three primary ways, plus a couple of other extraneous ways. Could be physical danger and could be other things. But three primary ways that sozo is used or soteria is used, we've taught this several times, used in three primary ways. First of all, in the past tense, you could refer to the moment you received eternal life, right? You could talk about your salvation. Remember when you got saved? September 1973 or whenever it was for you, okay? When, when you were uh, an unbeliever on the road to hell and, and someone gave you the gospel. Remember that day? Then that's... That's the first way that, that uh, as we categorize these and list these, I say it's the first way that we describe them, that we teach them. It's first sequentially or it's first logically. It's first as a concept because for us in experiencing, it's the first one we'll ever come to. We won't experience the second and the third until we experience the first. All right. It's also, but it's not first in terms of usages. If, if you were to make a list and you were start to chart out all of the verses where uh, category one of, of sozo was used, uh, phase one, we, sometimes we call it phase one, right? Uh, it's not the majority of the uses. It's not the majority of the cases, but it's the majority of the ones we think about. It's, it's the first thing that comes to our mind when we have a saved, a, the word saved. When we think saved, we think, ah, it's got to be with, uh, you know, an unbeliever trusting Christ and receiving eternal life when that's, that's actually the minority of the uses in the, throughout the New Testament. Okay? And yet it's the ones that we're very familiar with. Uh, Acts 4.12. Do we know these? We should know these. What are, your, what are your favorite sozo verses in the New Testament? The verb is sozo, the noun is soteria. Okay? There's other cognate forms. Soter is a savior and other forms. But Acts 4.12 all right verse 10 says let it be known to all of you and to all the people of israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, all right, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Okay, so Peter and John had healed this guy and it was a big scandal. Everybody wanted to know, you know, how did this happen? And it wasn't by their authority. It wasn't by their power. By the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. You know that passage? All right, Psalm 118, if you want to look it up. But the stone which the builders rejected. And here's, here's Peter's preaching saying, he's quoting the stone which the builders rejected. And in the middle of his, of his quotation, he says, by the way, Jesus is the stone and you're the builders. But this stone became the chief cornerstone. So you rejected the stone, but guess what? That stone's got a greater glory now than you even imagined. It's now the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So much for multiculturalism. (laughs) All right. There goes your plurality approach to comparative religions that says there are many paths to whatever. Yeah, there's many paths to hell, but there's one way, one truth, and one life, and that's Jesus Christ. And there is no other name given among men by which we must, must. It's not optional. There's no plan B. There's no alternative paths. Buddhism, you know, Hindu, Islam, nothing else gets you there. Faith in Christ and Christ alone gets you there. And so uh, anyway, this is, this is marvelous. And on Easter Sunday, it's even more spectacular because this, this is the birthplace of Christianity. This is, the, this is the, uh, the, the place in which a resurrected Christ was preached and proclaimed and thousands were responding to the message. They were following biblical Christianity. They were crossing from Old Testament into New Testament Christianity. And how easy could it have been to kill it right there in the cradle, to end it right there? This is what I was blessed with and I shared at prayer meeting. Uh, I read a John Piper thing um, last week and i i don't i don't usually recommend piper i don't i don't quote him often from the pulpit and i don't often uh maybe i gotta start reading more i don't know but (laughs) anyway he wrote a thing on the resurrection that i just it just blessed me abundantly and and i was so thankful for it but he pointed out the fact that jesus was killed in jerusalem he was buried in jerusalem he rose in jerusalem and the message of resurrection began in Jerusalem, that it was the birthplace of the church, the birthplace of Christianity. And uh, for these early months and early you know, year or two, before the persecution started driving them out, Jerusalem was the cradle for preaching the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And they preached it, and they preached it, and they preached it, and the religious leaders hated it. They kept ordering them to stop it, stop it, stop it. And how easy would it have been to produce a body if there was a body? Okay. The, the great high priest himself would have personally rolled away the stone and walked out, you know, hosted a corpse on his, on his shoulder and walked him out. And the, the, the great high priest himself, who could, was not allowed to touch a dead body, by the way, but he would have done it gladly to throw it down there in front of everybody and say, you're liars. Okay. And yet, the, res- the, the proof of the resurrection is the inability of the adversaries to disprove it. Had they been able to produce a body, it would have ended the church age right there. Christianity would have not, not been birthed the way that it had been. All right. So there's no other name given among uh, men by which we must be saved. Acts 16.31. Again, what must I do to be saved? Is what the Philippian jailer wants to know. And uh, we can suspect, and I think it's by virtue of the first question out of his mouth that he had been uh, listening to what had been spoken earlier in the uh, in the evening. That um, 
because we see that uh, about midnight, in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't think the prisoners were alone in listening to them. I think the guard was listening to them too. The jailer here. Then he went home and then he comes back and and uh, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I take this as phase one salvation, that he wants to know how to receive eternal life. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And so it's a pretty simple gospel message, don't you think? How tough is that? Romans 1.16, soteria. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for soteria, for salvation, to everyone who believes. How do you obtain this salvation? Believe. Okay? The Philippian salvation we're talking about, how do we work that out? By believing? Or with fear and trembling? It's a different, seems to be a different mechanism, don't you think? Seems to be a different context. Seems to be a different scope. Seems to be a different realm. All right. And, uh, but here it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so uh, if you want God's righteousness, you've got to accept it by faith. It's the only way to get it. Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 8. Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 8. I like to attach verse 5 in front of verse 8, the way the text does. Because verse 8 just simply uh, repeats the you have been saved part. Verse 5 actually spells out what does that mean? You have been saved. Well, it means you have been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the definition of being saved is being made alive. All right. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is important. In which you formerly walked. There's dead people walking right there. And, 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 and I, I point this out because I've had so many people um, that take that have a, a wrong approach to what does it mean to believe and what does it mean to be made alive. And they want to make being made alive a prerequisite in order to be able to believe. And they say that you can't believe until you're made alive. And so you're made alive first, and then you're able to believe. And then when you believe, then you're saved. And you can't do that because verse 5 says, making us alive equals being saved. And uh, when I say, no, you have to believe to be made alive, I say, well, how can a dead person believe? A dead person can't do anything. A dead person can't walk. A dead person can't talk. Well, right there he can. There's a dead man walking right there in verse 2. You were dead and you were walking. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived. There's a dead person living. That's called the living dead, right? And so he's walking, he's living, he's doing a lot of stuff. See, don't, see, if you think death equals inactivity, that's wrong. Death equals separation. And you can be very active, yet separated from the righteousness of God. And that's what it means here is they're spiritually dead. But yeah, they're walking according to the course of this world. They're walking in obedience to Satan. They're walking according to the sons of disobedience. And this is how they're living, living in the lust of their flesh. And they're indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And they are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So they are very active dead people, walking and living and indulging in childrening. And by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Lusting. That's an awful lot of activity. But a message gets preached. And they can either respond or not respond. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So phase one, salvation. 
being saved means being made alive. And, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace. Wow! What He's showing us today is only a deposit. It's only a down payment. It's only an appetizer. We haven't even had the full meal deal yet of God's grace. We've just had the appetizer of God's grace. And uh, I tell you, it tastes good. I like it. I want more. I want the full meal. And in the ages to come is when we get the super grace, the surpassing riches of His grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man, no one, may boast. So these are our positional uses of salvation. We call phase one. Secondly, phase two salvation in the present present salvation oftentimes uh, in the bible written of as a process written of as an ongoing thing a present thing it's experiential theologically sometimes we'll talk about a positional sanctification or a positional justification versus an experiential justification or an experiential sanctification and depending on the author you're reading or the theologian or the pastor you're listening to they may use these terms in slightly different ways They might talk about past, present, future salvation. They might talk about positional, experiential, or ultimate. They might try to distinguish between justification as a past thing, sanctification as a present thing, and then glorification as a future thing. They might try to break it down that way. I I, I don't like that method, but good men use that method, and so you'll be exposed to it. But present salvation... And it's the same sozo and it's the same soteria. So vocabulary does not solve your puzzle on this one. You're looking at the vocabulary, it's like phobos for fear. Phobos is the same vocabulary for fearing the Lord and fearing sharks or danger or, you know, scary things. And so vocabulary doesn't bail you out. It's context and it's usage that tells you, is this the right kind of fear or the wrong kind of fear? Is this phase one salvation, phase two salvation, phase three salvation? What use of salvation is this? And so there's an experiential component to this. Join me in Romans 5, if you would. And by the way, I I hope that you can kind of chart these out and and add to these lists. Make your own list. Have your own buckets of your own uh, phase one, phase two, phase three uh, salvation verses. And uh, recognize that on some of these they are open to debate or discussion or theological consideration. Others may, uh, may classify them slightly differently for different reasons. Sometimes they're bad reasons so you can let that go, but sometimes they're very good reasons, in which case you ought to uh, consider that. All right, Romans 5. Um, Again, we have past, therefore having been justified by faith. Okay, that's done. That's a completed act. So having been justified by faith in the past, complete, ongoing consequences now, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love being saved? I love being saved. I wouldn't trade that for the world. Are you kidding me? Wow. So having been justified, now, what's the kind of life he's provided? What do we have? And so we have a walk. We have an experience in time, presently. We have, presently now, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. There's an ongoing growth. There's an ongoing... We've had an introduction. Now we've got an ongoing maturation, development in our relationship. You know, uh, how sad is it if you never get past the introduction? I mean, seriously? Do you just get the introduction over and over and over again? Okay? I mean, seriously? I was introduced to Sharon, and I was very happy that we we got past that, <laughs> okay? I mean, it's good to start there. In fact, I didn't even, the first night I saw her was a Wednesday night. She was sitting next to Shirley Newton. I saw her, but no one introduced us. And then Sunday morning was Mother's Day, and she wasn't at church. 
because she'd gone to Florida and she was with Shirley's daughter in Florida. But then the following Sunday, she was back. Aha! And I got an introduction. Now, if that's all you get, and, well, okay, we get more than an introduction. So it's through Christ we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which, what? We presently, continuously, for the rest of all eternity, we keep on standing. We have now a grace relationship with God the Father. Jesus Christ made the introduction, but it didn't stop with that. And so we exult in hope of the glory of God. We have a relationship and we're eager in all these things. And, and there's tribulations along the way. Sure, that's fine. We don't mind that because we're, we're excited about what's coming up. And so we can exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. I mean, it's a good thing. We go through tough things. It makes us stronger. We're better for it afterwards. We're equipped afterwards to come alongside other believers when it's their turn to go through it. Proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint. So there's this long walk that follows our salvation. All right. Um, where am I headed? For? Uh, verses 9 and 10. All right. So uh, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's past completed action. Much more than having now. Okay? So what He did then was amazing. But what He's doing now is much more. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. Not to minimize that, I'm happy to be saved, but much more now. Having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. This is present, ongoing, living out our faith. Presently saved. Present salvation. Present deliverance. Having been justified, much more now, presently, presently say. For if, verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, in other words, saved, having been reconciled, we shall, we shall be saved by His life. That's presently. That's the present rescue That's the Word of God that's able to save you, that's able to save your souls. That's the rescue that we have presently now because we still have perseverance. We still have tribulations. We still have all these struggles. And so a test comes in, a crisis moment comes in. I need present saving. I need present saving. I am a believer. I have a past saving. And I've got a future saving guaranteed, physical death or rapture. So I'm happy for what happened in 1973 and I'm thrilled for what's going to happen someday. But today, I need to get saved. I need saving because today I've got a test. Today I've got a conflict. Today I've got a temptation. Today uh, uh, the, the angelic conflict is ramping up beyond description and, and my carnality is thinking about some very ugly things. It would have some tragic consequences. Almost unthinkable. Why would I want to do something like that? Well, if I'm in fellowship, I don't even give it a second thought. But out of fellowship, I'll give it a second thought. I'll give it a third thought. I'll give it a fourth thought. I'll think a lot about it. Okay? We all do. We all do. So we need a present salvation. A present salvation. And that is to be rescued from not the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. From the power of sin. That's our present salvation, from the power of sin. The future salvation is from the very presence of sin. That's another way. The, the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin is another way that authors have found to describe these three phases of salvation. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 
some other illustrations. By the way, some people, some authors will take that Romans 5 passage and they'll insist that it's a phase 1 salvation or they'll insist that it's a phase 3 salvation and they'll deny that it's a phase 2 salvation application. That uh, somehow it's just having been sanctified we can look forward to dying someday and, and, uh, and be saved when we leave this planet. Uh, I, I view it as a phase 2 salvation. Alright, 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are, notice it's present tense, the presently being saved ones, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And so we have the word of the cross. We have a present saving. We have a power provision that rescues us from the power of sin. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. We need this power today as we deal with uh, the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. All right, I'm a minute long. I've got to pick up on this Wednesday night. And there's a future salvation, the ultimate salvation when we're face to face with Jesus Christ. And then we need to ask ourselves, which one are we working out in Philippians chapter 2? Phase one, phase two, or phase three? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for our risen Savior. I thank you, Father, because he died and rose again. We now can walk in that newness of life. Because he died once and for all, we now operate as living and holy sacrifices. Father, just thank you and praise you again and again in our Savior's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, this